Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters with your host, Betty Jo Tucker, author of Confessions of a Movie Attic, right here at www.blogtalkradio.com. introduction and to you dear listeners for tuning into our show you don't have to be a movie addict to visit here of course but if you are one it's definitely the place for you especially today because author actor film critic phil hall is here to talk about his impressive new book in search of lost films now phil has been our guest several times before but this time he's on an important mission, and he'll tell us more about that in just a few minutes. First, we have some unfinished business from our last show. If you'll remember correctly, we heard five rousing stump speeches before we asked our listeners and Facebook friends to vote for the best film president. Well, the voting closed yesterday, and a drum roll, please, Henry Fonda, won that honor for his performance in Failsafe. Now, if you remember, we've held three similar elections in the past, with Harrison Ford winning twice for Air Force One and Bill Pullman once for Independence Day. So this year, congratulations to Henry Fonda, and thanks to the voters and campaign managers who participated in our 2016 election. Now, back to Phil Hall. It's no surprise to me that Phil would become interested in finding lost movies. He's a distinguished film critic with impeccable research credentials that make his latest book, as well as his previous ones, including The Greatest Bad Movies of All Time, which he talked about um, uh, a couple of years ago here on the show, and The History of Independent Cinema, so enlightening and worthwhile. It's my great pleasure to bring him on right now. Welcome back to Movie Attic Headquarters, Phil. Oh, thank you so much, Betty Jo. I'm so happy to be back here. Well, it's always a treat to have you with us, and congratulations on your uh, terrific new book. I understand you've been very busy doing interviews since its release last week. What's your reaction to all this? The reaction has been very, very strong, and there have been a lot of interviews. Just today I actually did 14 interviews back-to-back for the uh, Premier Radio Network, which was very exhausting but very invigorating. I've uh, done a number of email Q&As, and I have more interviews lined up. Apparently there's a great deal of interest in lost films out there, and I'm glad to uh, share this story with people who want to hear more about missing movies. Oh, I, I'm so glad that you wrote this uh, this book. I, it, it needed uh, to be done, and as I mentioned to you before going on the air, you're you're the perfect one to do it. I have enjoyed all of your books, and uh, the reason I do is because you have such an entertaining way of uh, delivering the information, and there's so much 
uh, new that I find, and you know I am a movie addict, so any time that I can find out something new about movies, I'm a, a happy camper. But how did you happen to become interested in lost films? Well, I've been writing about film history for the past three decades, and one of the problems in doing that is that there are missing pieces throughout film history. You go back through mm-hmm. Alfred Hitchcock's work, John Ford's work, Orson Welles' work, and there are movies throughout their careers that are lost. Uh, you look at somebody at like Oscar Michaud, who has been celebrated as a pioneering African-American filmmaker, but most of his work is known by reputation because the majority of his silent films and many of his sound films no longer exist. And... Over the past several years, there have been a number of lost films that have turned up, which, of course, is always good news. And I was wondering, maybe it's time to get a new book out on the market on the subject, giving an update on what has been discovered and perhaps doing a bit more in understanding what is lost. Previous books on the subject tend to focus on American movies only and primarily silent films. Not that there's anything wrong with that, because uh, the majority of American silent films are considered to be gone forever. There was a brilliant book uh, that came out 20 years ago called Lost Films, written by Frank Thompson, which is one of my all-time favorite books. But a few of the titles Mm -hmm. that were listed in Frank's book uh, have since turned up. And I figured, well, maybe it's time to bring the subject up to date, bring more people into it, and also to expand the subject to the sound film era and also to movies made in other parts of the world. I was so glad that you did that um, because it, it is an international uh, tragedy, I think, what's, what's happened to uh, so many of, uh, of the films. And you had to do just a tremendous amount of research on this big book. What, what was your greatest challenge while doing the uh, research? The greatest challenge was knowing when to call it quits because – The book was actually a year late in being delivered to my publisher, Bear Manor Media. I was doing so much research and learning more about films that I had never heard of and filmmakers I was not familiar with, and trying to track down information and trying to also differentiate some facts from legends that uh, the project went on much longer than I anticipated. And at one point, I just have to say, you know, I have to call this quits at some time because the publisher is expecting this and I'd like to get this out. Uh, If I hadn't just put the brakes on it, I could still be researching and writing this because the subject is just so extraordinary. Will there there be a sequel? (laughs) It's possible. If more uh, prominent lost films should turn up in the coming years, I would certainly be happy to come back to it. But I think at the moment, this is a, a pretty good understanding of where we are today in terms of what has been lost, what has been recovered, and what we need to know about film preservation. Yes, and you certainly did a a great job, Phil, of explaining uh, why so many movies have disappeared. And I know our listeners would be happy to to hear hear from you uh, on that topic. What what went wrong? Why why have they been lost? Well, one reason is that when people have asked me, how is it possible for a film to be lost? And I have to say. You can't look at the subject through contemporary mind frame. You have to go back in time to the pre-television era, even the pre-sound film era, to understand what uh, went into film production and distribution. Because way, way back in those distant years, films weren't considered to be artistic achievements. They weren't considered to be uh, a chronicle of the era. 
they were seen as disposable commodities. They, especially in the early silent years, something that could be quickly turned out, put into theaters, make a quick profit, and that was it. They, there was no perceived reissue value for most of these films, unless they were a blockbuster like D.W. Griffith's movies. So many of the films, quite frankly, were just thrown out, or the prints were melted down to extract the silver content within. Ooh. And the film prints were also a big problem, because prior to 1950, most films were shot on something called nitrate film. Now, nitrate film, yeah. when projected, is gorgeous on the big screen, and that's one reason why movies became so popular so quickly, because when you went to the theater and you looked up on the screen, the imagery was beautiful to behold, beautiful to behold. Uh, it's difficult to comprehend that today because if you look at old films from the silent era, even some of the early 30s films, they don't look that great when we watch them on television, but that's not what they looked like when audiences first saw them. Now, the problem with nitrate film came in storage. If the, the prints or the negatives were poorly stored in facilities that were not temperature controlled, one of two things could have happened. One, uh, the print would, or the negative would have deteriorated into dust or goo, or two, they could have actually burst into flames because mm. when the room was too hot, they would catch fire. And uh, this happened several times. Many films are lost because of fires in warehouses and vaults and in archives as well. Also, there was another problem uh, in the late 1920s. After The Jazz Singer came out and audiences wanted sound movies, uh, Hollywood studios decided, oh, there's no further value to have these old silent movies around. So many of these films, quite frankly, were just thrown out because there was no perceived reason to keep them because people didn't want to see silent films anymore. So, and this is particularly sad from films made from 1927 to 29 because an absurdly high number of films made in those few years are considered lost. But there was also a problem with the sound films because there were originally two different technologies for presenting sound film. One was the, having the film uh, soundtrack on the film itself, which is what we have today. Mm -hmm. And there was a second technology called sound on disc, where the film would be projected and the soundtrack would be on a separate phonograph disc that would be uh, broadcast in the theater. That became obsolete in the early 30s, but due to sloppy preservation, we've wound up in a situation where we have the soundtrack discs, but no film to go with it. And we also have films, but no soundtrack discs to go with it. Oh, my gosh. I'm thinking about Singing in the Rain, that movie. That was so entertaining that showed uh, some of the problems from transferring uh, silent to, uh, to sound. And, uh, it was. That was a very big upheaval. And the funny thing is, though, what we don't realize is that elsewhere in the world, uh, silent movies continued well into the mid-1930s. If you would go to Japan, mm -hmm. China, or even into Russia, they were still making silent films as late as 1936 or 37. Yeah, well, I, I know that the silent films don't look so good when you're watching them on television, but I, I really have uh, <laughs> developed an appreciation of through uh, Turner Classic Movies because they do uh, such a good job of showing the uh, silent films. And I think just recently they showed one by um, the African-American director that you were talking about, Oscar, uh, I forgot Oscar his last Michaud, name. Yes. Yes, and Oscar I think Michaud. it was Betrayal, which yes. is uh, 
and so I I thought, oh great, you know, at least there's there's something there that that they're able to to show, even though it isn't the original film. Uh, so there have been some restorations where where some of the stills are put in some of these movies where pieces of them were lost. Is that correct? That is correct. That most famous example of that was *A Star Is Born*, the Judy Garland version. That was restored in the 1980s, but there was there were scenes where the footage has disappeared, but the soundtrack remains. So they used still photographs to fill in the, the blanks. It's not the most ideal way to to see a movie. It's a little bit disconcerting, but it's it's the best way we can to appreciate what George Cukor and Judy Garland and their teammates had in mind when they first created that film. Yes, I I did see that on Turner Classic Movies also, and uh, you you mentioned in your book um, uh, quite a lot about Theda Berra, and I have to tell you when um, when I was growing up and uh, had this uh, obsession with movies and just had to have my movie magazines, uh, they were still showing, believe it or not, some pictures of Theda Berra. And I, I just thought that she had the most fascinating look. And, of course, I never, uh, I didn't see any movies. They weren't showing any movies with Theda Berra. But there were articles, you know, that would mention her and would show her uh, picture. So I was very ha- happy when you devoted so much time to Theda Berra. And um, I'm so sorry that uh, so many of her films were were lost. Uh, could you tell us a, a little bit more about Theta Berra and why it's such a uh, uh, so sad that we we don't have um, so many of her her films to see? Well, Theta Berra was the first movie sex symbol. She was invented by the Fox Studio, which was the predecessor of 20th Century Fox and today's Fox Media Corporation. Uh, Her name was Theodosa Goodman. She was an aspiring (laughs) actress from Ohio. And it was decided by William Fox that uh, he would make a star out of her. And he created the image of Theda Barra, the femme fatale. And she was cast in a film version of A Fool There Was, which was a popular Broadway play about a naughty woman. Back then they called them vamps, short for vampire, who ruins men for uh, pleasure and for profit. And her first film, The Fool There Was, came out in 1915, and it was a sensation. Uh, Audiences had never seen anything like this in a movie house, and there was a hunger for more Theda Barra movies. So uh, Fox basically rushed her through 40 films in a four-year period. These were all silent films. Oh, wow. Yes, and she was basically playing all sorts of... uh, Wild, Wicked Vamps, or film titles such as The Devil's Daughter, Sin, Gold, and the Woman, The Vixen, The Tiger Woman. She, it was, she, and most uh, famous, of course, was Cleopatra. She was uh, the first uh, star of an Egyptian epic made in Hollywood, and she was uh, the queen of the Nile. The problem, unfortunately, after uh, she had left films, Fox had no desire to re-release them because, again, these were silent films, so they stored the prints in a warehouse in New Jersey. And in 1937, mm-hmm. there was a fire at this warehouse, and almost all of Theda Barra's movies were considered to be destroyed. Uh, a couple of films did manage to survive. A Fool There Was is still extant. In fact, it was uh, last year it was added to the National Film Registry. 
but Cleopatra actually survived. Uh, there was one print of it at the Museum of Modern Art, and as luck would have it, there was a fire at that facility, and the print was destroyed. Uh, there was a uh, confirmed sighting of a print of her film version of Salome, which was made in 1918 in France in 1938, but uh, the Cinémathèque Française decided they didn't want to acquire the, the print of the film because they thought, oh, this is a silly old silent movie. By the time they realized their mistake, it was too late. The film had already disappeared. So mm. all we have of Theda Barrett today are these wonderful photos showing what a, an exotic and uh, mysterious and very sexy woman she was for the 1910s, and a reputation for being this fascinating screen personality, but we don't have the films to, to see anymore, because except for A Fool There Was and a couple of her later films, which made in the 1920s, which really are not representative of... Uh, her screen charisma, uh, she's gone to us. So we we don't we really can't uh, evaluate her as an actress. I mean, that that is that is just that, that's really really sad. And I I was uh, interested when you mentioned in your book that a similar case uh, deals with uh, Lon uh, Chaney's work. That's correct. Lon Chaney is, well, is more familiar to us because more of his films survive, though we, he has a reputation today of being a horror film star from the 1920s, though he didn't really make very many horror films. The only reason we think of him mm. that way is because uh, films like Phantom of the Opera were the most uh, easily available because they had survived, but as a very bad public domain prince. But Cheney was actually an extraordinarily versatile actor who he was gifted in terms of his use of makeup, but he could play heroes, he could play villains, he could do comedy, he could do tragedy. Uh, but very few of his, uh, his truly great films survived. One of the most uh, sought-after lost Cheney movies is probably uh, not one of his best, and that's London After Midnight. This was made in 1927 mm -hmm. at MGM, uh, directed by Todd Browning. It was the first American film with a vampire theme, but the, oh. uh, by all accounts, it wasn't a very good film. In fact, the movie had survived as late as 1967 when the, uh, the last known materials were destroyed at a vault fire on the MGM studio lot. Uh, nothing has turned up since except uh, some photographs of Cheney in makeup, which is, uh, in a way, it's, it's a little bit more funny than scary. Uh, he's not as uh, evil as Max Schreck's Nosferatu, and he certainly isn't as suave and sinister as Bela Lugosi's Dracula. But uh, all we have of this uh, this first vampire film are still photos because no print has ever been located since the uh, the last known print disappeared nearly 50 years ago. Yeah, I, I that is that is too bad too. But um, he he certainly was uh, was a great actor. I mean, from everything I read about uh, Lon Chaney, so it's too bad that we don't have everything that he did to uh, to appreciate um if one of the one of the most important missing films that you mentioned in your book is uh, is one that i i would love to be the person to find <laughs> and it's the marx brothers movie um humor Humorous. risk that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people don't know this. They think the first Marx Brothers movie was The Coconuts from 1929, but it wasn't. They actually made a movie eight years earlier called Humorisk. It was a short film around two reels. They self-produced the movie. Uh, the film was very different from what we would think of the Marx Brothers because they weren't in the characters that we've come to love. Uh, 
in this movie, Groucho plays a criminal who's on the run. Chico is his henchman. Harpo is a detective <laughs> on their trail. And Zeppo is uh, a nightclub proprietor. Uh, they all sort of meet up in this nightclub, but there's a lot uh, running about in chaos. And at the end, Groucho gets apprehended and sent off to jail. Uh, there have been a lot of very strange stories about humorist over the years, many of them perpetrated by Groucho, who apparently never really liked the movie. Uh, <laughs> one of the stories is that there was only one screening of the movie, and it was so poorly received that the Marx Brothers decided to just throw out the film. I find that to be a little strange because they invested a lot of money into it, $5,000, which was a, a princely sum in 1921, particularly for vaudeville comedians to to put together. Mm -hmm. And they also I also discovered they had a contract with a company called uh, Caravel that was supposed to distribute the film around the US. Uh, Caravel went out of business about a year after they had signed their contract. So if they were already contracted to put this film into release, it seemed very unlikely they would just throw it out because obviously Caravel could bring them to uh to court for a breach of contract. My suspicion is that the movie is out there someplace. It may be under a different title, or maybe the title is just gone, because there are a lot of silent films that survive. Now, we don't have the titles attached to us, so we don't know what these films are. Every year, the Library of Congress puts out uh, a festival called uh, Mostly Lost, where people are asked to come in and to help identify films that don't have their titles. And this has been going on for about five years, So, and it's been very, very oh. helpful to... Uh, track down films that we may have considered to be lost when, in fact, they did survive, or these may even be films we didn't even know existed in the first place. Wow. Well, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be looking. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm checking closets and, and garages and going to yard sales and, and uh, that kind of thing. So that's what happens when you read, dear listeners, when you read In Search of Lost Films, you feel like you really, really do want to join Phil Hall uh, with his mission to find some of these uh, lost uh, films. Where are where are some of the places to look, or where have some of these lost films been discovered? Well, actually, it's very funny. You're not being facetious when you say go looking in your attic or your basement or go to a yard sale, because a lot of films actually have been found that way. Uh, some very notable examples. There was a Three Stooges film from the 1930s called Hello Pop. It was made in Technicolor at MGM, and that was considered to be lost forever in the, the vault fire of 1967. Uh, three years ago, it turned up in a garden shed in Sydney, Australia, so of all places. So they were able to bring <laughs> it back to the U.S. and restore it, and they're able to uh, we can watch the film today. Uh, a couple of uh, notable films have turned up in yard sales. There was a, uh, a Charlie Chaplin film that was made at the Keystone Studios in 1914 that was found at an uh, antique sale in Michigan. It's called A Thief Catcher. And the funny thing is that mm -hmm. nobody even knew this movie existed. This was not in any of Chaplin's biographies. So this was a major oh. find. We didn't even know the film uh, was made, let alone lost in the first place. But it... Uh, it is now uh, online. You could watch this. There's another Chaplin film, which was made in 1916 without Chaplin's permission. Uh, a British filmmaker put together scenes from various Chaplin movies and created a World War I propaganda short called Zept, which Char uh, Charlie's taking on the Kaiser to save England during World War I. 
And that was discovered on eBay. Somebody purchased a film canister not knowing the contents, and lo and behold, Zep turned up, and this was also news to film historians who were unaware the movie existed. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a uh, fellow in England who found two Peter Sellers short films made in the 50s in a dumpster in London. And again, these were films nobody knew that Sellers even made because they hadn't been seen since uh, uh, almost 60 years ago. So that was an exciting uh, discovery. And of course, the one interesting thing is uh, a lot of lost films have turned up in archives because we didn't realize that in the first place, but they were either mislabeled or they were shelved and completely forgotten. And in the, in the book, I list a number of films that have uh, been found at uh, the Library of Congress and the British Film Institute and other archives around the world where they're doing an inventory search, and lo and behold, this movie uh, or that movie turns up, and they didn't realize they had it in the first place. Oh, my gosh. What a, what a surprise. What a treat <laughs> to find something like this. Well, Phil, we're just going to take a little break here and uh, listen to a message from a loyal listener. And when we, when we come back, my question to you is, what are the most important missing films, in your opinion? Now, I've told you the one in particular that I would like to find. So um, be ready to tell us uh, which films that are missing that are the most important to you. But uh, here's a little break, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Hi, comedian Nancy Lombardo here, host of Comedy Concepts, Blog Talk Radio. And when I need my movie fix, you'll know where I'll be found. That's right, every Tuesday at 4 p.m., listening to Betty Jo Tucker on Movie Attic Headquarters Blog Talk Radio. Show me the funny, Betty, show me the funny! <laughs> Thank you, Nancy Lombardo, for that fun promo. And uh, Nancy is in the chat room uh, she says she's multitasking, so she's not doing much uh, chatting. But uh, please, dear listeners, uh, check out Nancy Lombardo's hilarious show, Comedy Concepts, that's, been, that's broadcast here on Blog Talk Radio every Monday, every Friday and Monday at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time. You'll really get hooked on that show, just as, as I am. We're back live now, and we're talking with Phil Hall, author of In Search of Lost Films. And uh, I, I'm going to ask Phil right now, what are the most important missing films in your opinion? Well, Betty, I know that you're a big uh, movie musical fan, particularly the MGM musicals. And there are two yes. oh, films yes. uh, that I would love to be able to, uh, to track down and see. Uh, these aren't missing films in terms of the extant footage, but these are films that do not look like the productions that were originally produced. The first one, and this is probably the most familiar to many of the listeners, is The Wizard of Oz. Uh, as yeah. you know, The Wizard of Oz began production with Buddy Epson as the Tin Man, and when Epson was in the cast, uh, Judy Garland's Dorothy actually had blonde hair. The film was being directed by a man named Richard Thorpe, and by all accounts, the production did not get off on a good start. Uh, the producer, Mervyn Leroy, was very unhappy with Thorpe's footage, and 
uh, production had to be shot down because Epson had gotten very sick because of his uh, makeup, which they used aluminum dust, yeah. which he inhaled, and he had to be hospitalized. So all of the uh, footage featuring Epson and featuring Judy Garland in her blonde wig uh, was, was thrown out. We have, uh, we have a recording of Epson singing, uh, If I Only Had a Heart, and we have a couple of production stills, but that's it. And I would love to have been able to uh, to track that down to see what it looked like, to see what Epson was like in the film. And also, apparently, there was a reprise of Somewhere Over the Rainbow that Judy Garland had recorded live on the, the set with only a piano accompaniment. They were going to add the orchestration later. And her performance was so riveting that the cast and crew broke into tears when she was done. So I... <sighs> Can you imagine what that footage must have been like? I would love to, uh, to oh, see that. Oh, I wish, I wish that could be found. I, I really, I really do. Uh, although I don't like the idea of Judy Garland with blonde hair, but yeah. wow, what a, what a number that somewhere yeah. over the rainbow. Uh, Phil, also I have a. Mm-hmm. Go go ahead. What else sorry, besides? besides uh, well, there's more of the Wizard of Oz, of course, uh, that is that is lost after Jack Haley replaced Buddy Epson and. Victor Fleming took over as the director, and Judy Garland's hair color was uh, was no longer blonde. There were three musical numbers that were shot that were taken out of the film, the most famous, of course, being the Jitterbug number, which survives yeah. as a recording and some home movie footage, but uh, the actual footage itself is gone. There's also uh, a reprise, another reprise of Over the Rainbow with Judy Garland singing it again, this time in The Witch's Castle, in her natural hair color. That doesn't exist anymore. And there was a reprise of uh, Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, which was supposed to have been a musical number sung when, after the witch was, uh, was melted. Judy Garland and her friends were to take the broom and go back to Oz, and they would be greeted at Oz, and everyone would start singing Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. There's about three seconds of that footage in the trailer to The Wizard of Oz, but the entire musical number was cut out. So uh, that's one of the uh, lost films I would love to be able to find with all those missing numbers. The second film is another MGM musical uh, called Ziegfeld Follies, which came out in 1946. And the original film, if you can believe this, ran four and a half hours. And the release version is 110 minutes, which is less than two hours. So we have almost uh, more than two hours of footage, which has been uh, cut out and thrown away with musical numbers featuring Fred Astaire, Lena Horne, uh, mm. Jimmy Durante. There was also Fanny Bryce doing her Baby Snooks character, and this was the only time Baby Snooks was filmed, and all of that is gone too. And you can't imagine one why MGM would want to make a four-and-a-half-hour movie if they were, had no plans to release it even as a whole or in two parts. And it, it seems so odd that they, they went through all of this bother to... Uh, create the musical numbers, do the orchestrations, costuming, film it in Technicolor, which was very expensive, and then just throw away all of that footage. Oh, my gosh, I did not realize that. Wow. And it would just be so great to see what's missing. <laughs> Definitely. I, I approve of your of your selections of important missing films <laughs> that you'd like that you'd like to find. Um have you seen any of the uh, films? I, I I was really really impressed with uh, this filmmaker that you uh, wrote about in your book and and dealt 
and gave quite a bit of uh, space to, uh, well-deserved, Esther Eng. No, um, I haven't had a chance to see Esther Eng's work. And she, and this is one of the things I learned while writing the book, because I wasn't familiar with Esther Eng's uh, movies at all. Esther Eng was an independent producer and director who was active in the 1930s and 1940s, and she broke two barriers, uh, not only racially, because she was Chinese-American, but obviously as a woman. They were outside of Dorothy Arzner. Nobody, uh, no woman was uh, creating movies on a regular basis. Dorothy Arzner was in Hollywood, but her output was somewhat spotty. But Esther Eng turned out a whole bunch of uh, films shot in the U.S., uh, some shot in Hong Kong, and only about two or three of these films are known to survive. And it was interesting that by the end of the 1940s, she just abruptly gave up filmmaking, decided to become a restaurant owner, and she ran a chain of successful restaurants uh, until she passed away. And at the time of her death, most people knew her through her restaurants, and few people realized that she was a pioneering filmmaker. Oh my gosh, I, that's that again is is so sad that we don't that we don't have those those films to see. There was one one movie that I don't know whether uh, it doesn't sound like it's worth looking for, but um, it might be a curiosity. And it's and it's uh, a film by Phil Tucker, no relation, and it's yeah. called Space Space Jockey. <laughs> Could yes. you tell our you know, listeners a little funny. bit about? <laughs> Yesterday, when I did 14 back-to-back interviews, that was the one film people kept asking about. And it's interesting because oh. it's probably the least important film in the book. Phil Tucker <laughs> created a movie called Robot Monster, which is widely regarded as one of the worst films ever made. Uh, robot <laughs> Monster involves a robot from the moon that looks like a gorilla wearing a diving helmet who chases six people around Bronson Canyon in California. It's uh, and it was shot in 3D. It was uh, an extraordinary film for all the wrong reasons. Uh, Space Jockey was a film that he made after Robot Monster, and he shot the movie in Fairbanks, Alaska, which was very curious because no films were being produced up there at that time. Uh, he used a local cast. Uh, by all accounts, it was a threadbare production. I think they even had a barber's chair as the uh, astronauts. Uh, chair in the space shuttle. This is how uh, how cheap they were. <laughs> it must have been a hilariously bad movie, one of these so bad they're good productions. But what happened to the film has been a mystery because by all accounts, the production wrapped up without any incident. They were sh- It took them about a week or maybe 10 days to shoot the film. And after that, it just vanished. Uh, I have not found any evidence that the movie was completed or released. Uh, Phil Tucker himself said that the movie was worse than Robot Monster, so if something could be worse than Robot Monster, I think it certainly deserves to be checked out. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, yeah, then uh, you can write another uh, chapter to your uh, the, the world's greatest all-time all bad movies. <laughs> oh, yeah. Movies. Well, Phil Tucker was in that book, but not for Robot Monster. He made a film with Lenny Bruce called Dance Hall Racket, which was... Uh, it's astonishingly bad film. It wasn't a comedy movie. It was a gangster film because for some reason Lenny Bruce didn't want to uh, do a comedy movie. He wanted to play a, a tough guy, but he, he couldn't act. And you watch the film, and it, it's just so embarrassing. Half the time you want to look away in, in shame, and the other half you're, you're just literally laughing at him for trying to be something he's not. <laughs> well, I noticed uh, that you... you uh 
you would like to find you would like to find the Great Gatsby, but haven't we had enough Great Gatsby's? <laughs> We've had a lot of bad Great Gatsby's. That's why I want to find the original. The original version was made in 1926. It was made during the Jazz Age, so it was probably closer in spirit than the other films that uh, came out. Uh, Warren William played Gatsby, and he didn't really look like the blonde pretty boys that had played the character in the other movies. He looked more like a, a roughneck, which is really what Gatsby was. If you go back to the Fitzgerald novel, uh, Gatsby was not this, this pretty blonde guy that everybody fell in love with. He, he looked like a roughneck, and that's one reason why Gatsby's fate was so cruel is because he tried to be something he wasn't, and people were able to catch it rather quickly. Uh, only one-minute trailer of the film survives, and the footage uh, in the trailer really looks very, very intriguing. And one of the actors in that uh, trailer, and he had played Nick Haraway in the film, uh, was Neil Hamilton. And most people today know Neil Hamilton as Commissioner Gordon from the Batman TV series, but back in the 20s yeah. he was a very popular uh, leading man, and he actually had a very distinguished career in Hollywood in the 20s and 30s, but today we, we only know him as uh, the, the campy Commissioner Gordon who's answering the red phone in Batman. Well, here's, uh, I hope that you find the Great Gatsby, and I hope that I find that uh, Marx Brothers um, movie, and then when we do find them, we can get together and we can and, can brag about our exploits. Is that a date? It's it's a perfect date. I think it's a great double feature. I think it would be. Well, uh, it's just all I just learn so much whenever you're here on the show, Phil, and whenever I read your books. I we uh, the time is going by so fast, but I wanted to give you a chance to tell everybody where they can get the book and and to, uh, you know to add anything else that you would like to about your uh, excellent book. Well, the book again is in search of lost films. It just came out last week. Uh, it was published by Bear Manor Media. You could get the book on Amazon or any of the online sites that offer books for sale, or you can go to the Bear Manor Media website and order it directly from there. Are you working on any new film-related projects? I've got uh, several things in the works. I'm actually in a documentary uh, that will hopefully be out next year called Finding Kukan. And this is a documentary about the search for a long-lost film. It was called Kukan, K-U-K-A-N. Uh, this was the first feature film to win the Academy Award for Best Documentary. It was released in 1941. Uh, it had disappeared for many decades, and a filmmaker out of Hawaii named Robin Lung was able to track down the last surviving print of the film. She was able to get this over to the Academy of motion pictures, arts, and sciences for a restoration, and the print is currently undergoing uh, very significant uh, preservation. And Robin interviewed me for her film about the historic significance of Kukan, so uh, this is something that I'm quite happy about, and I uh, hope to see it in theaters uh, next year. I am also writing for uh, the Cinema Crazed website, uh, published by Felix Vasquez, Jr., so you could look online at cinema-crazed.com. I cover uh, retro films as well as uh, contemporary independent film releases. And uh, I am also uh, back in the acting field. I've, uh, every now and then I get to act in movies, and I was recently in uh, a short film called The uh, Fortune Teller's Fable, which was 
premiered at uh, the recent 48-hour film project in New Haven, Connecticut, and hopefully we'll be able to see that film in festivals and maybe online in the very near future. Oh, great. I, I'm looking forward to that. And I, I do want to urge all of our listeners to check out your book, In Search of Lost Films. I think it's a very important uh, film. And, uh, of course, you know, when I like something, I write a little poem about it. Movies disappear. Why, oh, why? So many lost. We ought to try to find as many as we can. That's why I am a Phil Hall fan. His book appears the place to start, helping locate some true lost art. So that's from my Ray review of In Search of Lost Films. And I see that our time is almost up. So here's a big shout-out to Phil Hall for being a great guest again today and to the folks at Blog Talk Radio for their support, as well as to our chatters and other listeners. Special thanks to Nancy Lombardo, George Bettinger, and Angela Drake Perry for their enthusiastic support. They always mention Movie Addict Headquarters on their wonderful radio shows. Nancy, you heard about in that uh, fun promo, but George uh, hosts uh, a very entertaining uh, mom-and-pop shop show over there on TuneIn Radio from Miramar, Florida, and... um, Uh, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And Angela is a VIP and show host for the Wacko Network, which which airs on Mixler, that's M-I-X-L-R, where there's something of interest for everyone each day of the week, and weekends too. Please come back, folks, next time for another spirited discussion about movies. Our guests will be special effects wizards Dragon Dronay and Chuck Skull. And don't forget, again, to check out Phil Hall's wonderful book, In Search of Lost Films. Also, if you haven't ordered my new book, Cinema Stanzas, Rhyming About Movies, you can purchase this book for only $3.99 on Amazon.com. I want to thank Phil Hall for writing an amazing foreword to my book. It made it a must-see, a must-read for fans of both poetry and films. That's all for now, folks. Let's call on Brian Ferry to take us out with a beautiful song from Casablanca, one of the movies I'm glad was never lost. You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers move They still say I love you On that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of day Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man And man must have his mate That no one Still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.